You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, yet again, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. I had to remember what I say there. Who I'm are proud, you? I'm proud to be with you, Kyla. My brain is very tired yeah. this week, month, year. Hmm. Why is that? Um, well, it's very busy, and there's a lot going on, lots of different things happening, stuff taking place. Okay. Um, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm. Uh, I have to say that I'm very proud to be with you now that I found out that you are a uh, very successful author, not just a published author. It turns out your book, Stood the one that I recommended pot. you write on cross examination, cross examination, oh, yeah. the pinpoint method. The man always takes credit for the you wrote work it. You wrote it. You wrote it. <laughs> you wrote it. You came to me and asked, "What else should I write?" Because they want me to write a book, and I was thinking I'd write two. And uh, I suggested you write a book on cross-examination, and the first run has sold out, and the reviews are fantastic. I don't it was know on when, back when order, did, I found did, out. Somebody did, ordered it, and she said, it's on back order. Yeah, because they ran out their first run, so they're going to do another run. They must not have believed I would sell very many, because they probably only printed a few then. <laughs> well, who knows? I mean, if they printed a thousand or whatever they printed, I mean, it's they probably print quite I've a few. sold a couple hundred Several hundred books. Several hundred books I've sold. Anyway, the uh, I'm glad to uh, glad to know you as a famous author. I'm just wondering when you're going to have a uh, a book signing at the uh, at the chapters on Broadway. Yeah, I don't think LexisNexis sells their books at the chapters on Broadway. Nor does anybody want a LexisNexis book well, that maybe, goes to chapters on Broadway. Maybe the uh, the library at the University of Victoria or something like that. But. Paul, we have to tell the listeners, if you haven't purchased one of my books, either Immediate Roadside Prohibition in the Western Canada or Cross-Examination, the Pinpoint Method, for the rest of the month of March... You get a discount. LexisNexis is running a promotion for International Women's Day, celebrating their female authors. And if you use the code WOMEN2022, WOMEN2022, you can get 15% off. Save the tax. It's worth it. Yeah, it's totally worth it. Buy two. Buy one as a gift. One for yourself. Yeah, or just buy one. Books are expensive. That's true. In any event, <laughs> we probably have topics uh, other we than this that we should discuss. We have topics. Oh boy, do we have topics. So I thought first we would talk about a case that we lost, but we kind of won. Yes, Flores. Flores. Recent B.C. Supreme Court decision that you got. Yes, this is a Mr. case. Mr. Justice... Can't. And I think we hinted at it a little bit last week or two weeks ago when we talked about um, Karen Control. Sure. Karen Karen Control? Yeah, Karen Control. Yeah, she's a bitch. Um, <laughs> All the poor women named Karen in the world who are suffering. Yeah, I know. Um, anyway, it was a case where the issue was whether or not Mr. Flores was going to drive his car. And ultimately... The court upholds the adjudicator's reasoning that this guy was drunk and he was in his car and he didn't really have a concrete plan, nor had he really taken steps in furtherance of that plan. And so he didn't have a concrete, reliable plan and fall within the definition of somebody who'd proved the 
sort of um, fact that he wasn't in care and control or that there wasn't a realistic risk. But what's really important coming out of this decision is the court's comments on credibility assessment. This is an ongoing issue for us because we deal with the tribunal of the superintendent of motor vehicles virtually every day, sometimes many times a day. And we get the decisions and the decisions, you, you cannot discern um, how they, what, what, what rational reasoning would have led them to reject the evidence of your client. But it's within the realm of possibility for the court a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying to yourself, well, you know, can I appeal this further? It feels like they're working backwards to render the decision and then just saying that they find it curious about something or they're changing the test. Like yes. there's a new test every week. Um, whatever you, if you all- meet the requirements of the test in the last decision, then the test is changed in the new decision. And the problem with these like assessments is that they're all usually based on what the adjudicator imagines a person would or would not do in a particular scenario. Or imagines what evidence they would or would not have, should have. Yeah, or, or what an officer have. would do or not do. Yeah. You know, it, and they use these phrases that they come up a lot in the decisions and they're actually quoted. I find it curious that you yeah. didn't demand and slam your fist on the, on the police cruiser's hood and if demand you, that you provide you, another sample. If you were as upset as you claim you were, I question why you didn't tell the officer you were upset. Like, whatever. And even if you did tell the officer, it's not in the officer's narrative, therefore. The court says, I'm uh, paragraph 33 of Flores, I might also add that the terminology employed by the adjudicator in expressing her concerns, in quotation marks, is problematic. I refer here to the phrases, it does not make sense to me that, I question why, and I do not understand why, all of which invoke her personal common sense assumptions about human behavior. It would perhaps have been better for the adjudicator to simply state that Mr. Flores's uncorroborated evidence lacks sufficient detail or other supporting narrative to persuade her on the balance of probabilities that he would not uh, have driven the vehicle that night. Absent express reasoning along these lines, I consider the adjudicator's reasoning regarding credibility to have been fundamentally flawed, a conclusion that is only reinforced by her failure to expressly grapple directly with conflicting evidence respecting the location of the keys and who actually retrieved them, whether the driver's seat was reclined, and whether Mr. Flores made a statement that he intended to drive, albeit after waiting for a period of time. Right, and this is what they do, right? Like, this is what we see often, is instead of dealing with the conflicts in the evidence that go to the heart of the decisions to be made, they go and import what the court characterizes as importing new considerations not arising from the evidence and then requiring a person to explain them when they couldn't even have known because all they get is the evidence that these considerations exist. Or they could not have known that these were the things that were going to matter to the adjudicator. Yeah. There's actually a line. It's like that the adjudicator is trying to find something that's going to matter to them um, when it's not central to the issue. There's a line in a case called Boys that says um, it would have required remarkable foresight to recognize this as a matter that an adjudicator would think of value to an assessment of his credibility. The problem with this decision, I mean, this is great that it, it calls them out on it. Okay, It calls them out on this practice. But the problem with it is that the court is never giving remedies for this practice. And this practice has been in something that's gone on in decision after decision from them. 
and they still defer to, you know, all the adjudicator has to do is change the word from, I find it curious to say, I, I find it's not supported or something like that. Um, so I, it seems like it's an out. I'm glad they're called out for it. Um, but I see the next step is, is just to change the language a little bit. Um, because the, uh, and, and I, and I think it's, this is the closest thing to them being called out, mm-hmm. uh, on it, but the court seems to generally just overlook it for whatever reason. I mean, it's contrary to the justice and a justice system in my mind, but, um, I, I I'm not I, I, as happy as I am about the decision. I don't know that it's going to change fundamentally the way that they make decisions, which is. Really, you've got two versions of the evidence. You've got the evidence from your client that is is usually internally consistent and 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 persuasive, and you then you have a police officer's evidence, which is often lacking in all sorts of things. And the police officer just gets the uh, uh, the benefit of the doubt on anything, and the client's evidence is scrutinized at a level that is just inhuman, <laughs> like wrong. Yes. Um, the other thing though, about the decision that was good, I mean, it doesn't have any value, but I just think it's good to consistently recognize this is that it reinforces that discussion that we saw many, many years ago, um, arising out of like Spencer and Kenyon about the absence of cross-examination, um, and how there's like really no mechanism like cross-examination doesn't exist. You know, we're talking about my book and here we are, we see uh, the court saying that, you know, cross-examination is the crucible in which the truth is distilled. But we don't get any cross-examination with this thing. So it kind of feels like uh, Clint Eastwood yelling at at the empty chair that would be Obama, right? Like I I get, I'm conducting the hearings and I'm saying, look, there's here in this section of the police officer's narrative, he discusses something that in his detailed narrative, he completely omits. I would love to be able to cross-examine him on it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's clear that this is an uh, omission in one area or the other. And I know the tribunal is probably just going to overlook it because I don't get to cross-examine. And I, sometimes I point that out in the hearing. And it's still like, you're, you know, you're, you get back a decision where that's ignored. Yeah. Um, something that you said that was a, a theoretical thing has been focused on yeah. to embarrass you as the Mr. lawyer. Mr. Doroshenko submitted that the officer may have had a broken finger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, why does he not type this in? That's that's the type of thing that he... Like, you're just you like, up, well, who knows why he didn't type it in? Maybe his finger was broken. I don't know. I can't say. Yeah, yeah. and then, then that's how they put it in the decision. Yeah. And it's to try and undermine... It feels like it's to try and undermine your relationship. I think it is. I think it is to try and undermine your relationship with your client. Yeah, so they don't um, appeal. Because so few so lawyers appeal. appeal these. So, yeah. But there is a nice little line in here. And, of course, we as lawyers are not allowed to record the hearing without telling the adjudicator beforehand that we're doing it and, and we don't do it and they don't record it at their end. So their version, how they spin this, it. This is the <laughs> third decision from this judge specifically in the IRP context where he has made a comment complaining about the fact that the hearings aren't recorded. And you'd think that they would go, gee, recording the hearings might help us on a judicial review because we respond to the judicial reviews, but no. But I just want to bring one more line before we move on from this to people's attention. It's at paragraph 29 where the court quotes from a case called Farnia and Shorney. And they say the real test of the truth of the story of a witness 
must be its harmony with the preponderance of probabilities, which a practical and informed person would readily recognize reasonable. And not only is that a tongue twister, but I, I disagree though, because lots of the times, but, lots of the times, the the things that take place in our cases are not necessarily people being reasonable. The police officers aren't always reasonable. Police officers beat people up. We see it on every once in a while in video. They're not always reasonable. Sometimes the things they do uh, are are just bizarre. And every once in a while you get it on video. Um, the uh, Your clients are in a position where they're not going to make great choices necessarily. Well, yeah. uh, so they're not always reasonable. Um, so my problem with that is that sometimes it's completely inconsistent with reasonable uh, and there's other aspects that can be um, properly used to determine whether or not uh, you know one version of events should be accepted over the other. And this is not, to me, the correct measure. So there was a, um, a Russian commander who was captured and he uh, gave a uh, statement um, basically talking about how stupid the war is uh, in Ukraine. And it's about a 20 minute recording. And, you know, of course he's captured and you're watching this thing and you're thinking to yourself, is this guy legit? A, um, is this statement reasonable and believable? B, and, you know, you get a sense of it despite the fact that you have nothing to measure but against except think, him but, telling you. But think about all the times where the adjudicators, like in a second test case, where the officer says two different serial numbers and nothing else, and the client provides detailed evidence about how they know that the second test was on the same device or why they believe it was. Instead of assessing it many, many times on the preponderance of probabilities that a practical and informed person recognizes readily as reasonable based on that evidence. They go, well, it's possible that when the officer turned his back to speak on his radio, he retrieved a different device and you just didn't see it. That's not a preponderance of probabilities. It's not readily recognizable as reasonable. It's sheer speculation. And the courts have never shut it down. But now there is a judgment that seems to suggest, no, you can't just reason about speculative possibilities and say that a person hasn't met their burden of proof because of speculative possibilities. Well, I understand your uh, <laughs> your, your optimism about using that yes. decision for that. I just think that uh, looking at the manner in which, I mean, BC Supreme Court decisions have been regularly ignored by the tribunal. So uh, a, a number of them. So uh, if you expect them to suddenly change their ways, I think they're just going to change their words. Okay. All right. Moving on to another issue that is very interesting. Today, the day that we're recording, which is Thursday because the podcast comes out on Friday. Today, the Supreme Court of Canada granted leave in three separate cases, which is almost unheard of, three leaves. But one of the three cases is a case called Basque. And it's a case out of New Brunswick where Miss Basque was uh, convicted of impaired driving. And one of, of course, the things that happens when you're convicted of impaired driving automatically under the criminal code is that you get a mandatory minimum one year driving prohibition. When she was pulled over by the police, she was put on an undertaking. And the undertaking was that she not drive. And there were 21 months between when she was pulled over to when she was convicted and sentenced. I can't believe they put her on such an undertaking. Maybe 21 she had months a history, where she couldn't drive. 
21 months where she couldn't drive. 21 months where she couldn't drive. So, so almost double the length of what she would get if found guilty. So this the issue here is whether or not she gets credit for it like she would get credit for a jail sentence. Exactly. So she argued, relying on an earlier decision from the Supreme Court of Canada in a case called Lacasse, that um, her driving prohibition should be taken into account by the court um, because... She was on a, essentially a bail condition. And the um, Crown uh, argued that, no, the mandatory penalty couldn't be changed by a judge, even if a person's on a bail condition, not to drive. So the Crown appeals. The uh, summary conviction appeal is dismissed. The Court of Appeal grants leave to appeal and allows the appeal and imposes a further one-year driving prohibition for this poor woman. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. Well, it's interesting because we have these decisions now out of Alberta talking about when you've served some administrative, administrative driving prohibition, yep. you get credit for that if it all arises out of the same yep. um, criminal investigation. And there is an inconsistent approach between the provinces. Like Alberta will give you credit on the mandatory driving prohibition. BC will not, although it's never really fully been argued here, <laughs> if... Only I could get a client that was on a bail condition not to drive and also got convicted. But what are the odds of me ever having both those terrible things? It's so rare you end up with a the, client who's convicted. It's um, so rare that, I end up with a driving to, client that, you don't that get has to make the argument. bail. The last driving client I had that got released on a condition, it was a reporting condition, and the Crown consented to cancel the undertaking because there's no reason for it. But even circumstances where you get a, an ADP and the client yeah. ends up with a criminal conviction, odds are that you've, you've won on one or the, one yeah. or, or both of those. So if they didn't yeah. serve their ADP, they're not getting the, exactly. uh, the credit for that. So, At least you can't make that argument. No. So the distinction here is that in the earlier case in Lacasse, which was a Supreme Court of Canada case where he was given a 10-year driving prohibition, but he'd spent some time on bail. Um, so the driving prohibition was reduced to account for the, the period of time where he couldn't drive as a bail condition. That was a discretionary, not a mandatory minimum prohibition. Okay. He killed somebody, I think. Yeah. So the prohibition was much longer at the discretion of the court. So... The Supreme Court of Canada is going to have to work out whether or not a mandatory driving prohibition can be reduced. And as far as I'm concerned, the New Brunswick Court of Appeal got this one wrong. Because well, it's a bail condition. Yeah, it's a bail condition. But just because you're on a bail condition doesn't mean that it necessarily should lead to your sentence being reduced. Think about this, okay? If, you're, if you are detained pre-trial custody and you're you know sitting in in jail for six months waiting for your trial well that's a complete deprivation you of your credit. liberty and you get credit for it but it's complete deprivation of your liberty they're keeping you in jail usually for the protection of the public is the complaint is the suggestion now if ultimately you are you know that's a different time right it's but it's it's your liberty uh, and so it is specifically speaks to sentences where a person gets a jail sentence. Don't Try interrupt me, Kyla. Don't interrupt me. You know, it's the, uh, this is a, you know, as opposed to, as opposed to what they call, and now is in the criminal code, driving being a privilege and not a right. Your liberty is a right. Driving is not a right. 
And so, you know, on that basis, I think that, uh, you know, this is not a, uh, we're not talking about jail. We're talking about driving prohibition. Um, you know, or should they be looking at everything that you served on your sentence? Gee, you had a, uh, a no go to the shopping mall where you, you know, committed armed robbery during the time that you were released. Oh, the, the shopping mall wants a no-go after you've been convicted uh, for three years. Oh, you know what? We better reduce it to two years because you had one year that you couldn't go to the mall. Why in your example is the shopping mall getting an input into sentence? That's Um, a legal error. I appeal. That's not the point. And you know it. That's not the point. You know it. You're just being trouble. I'm always trouble. Anyway, this is a fascinating case. Very interesting. A good one to get involved in. Um, and to follow. But just because it got leave doesn't mean it's going to be anything. They can they can give leave and dismiss it with a one-liner and say that that's Well, they still okay. have to hear the arguments and listen yeah. to any potential interveners or anything like that. I think it's, you know, I think it's highly interesting and relevant. When we were there, one of the justices fell asleep for a few minutes. Yeah, well, you know, some things are boring. So <laughs> my advice to counsel the Supreme Court of Canada, spice it up. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay, third thing that we need to talk about today is some very sad news out of Humboldt, Saskatchewan. Yeah, this was sad because this is not uh, what people wanted, I think. So go ahead. So uh, as people remember, we've talked numerous times on the podcast when the Humboldt uh, accident happened. Um, Jazz Karat Sadu was sentenced to a lengthy jail sentence, which he served, got like early release. And then after release from his jail sentence, then deportation proceedings begin. And because he is not a citizen of Canada, there are certain provisions of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act that essentially make you deportable if you're not a citizen or a permanent resident, um... If you're convicted of an indictable offense that has a minimum pe- or a, an available penalty of up to 14 years in jail, and of course, dangerous driving causing death does. And so, because he was a permanent resident, he had a right of appeal, which meant that even though he was deported, he could appeal the deportation decision and say, Hey, don't deport me. Um, I need to stay in Canada for X, Y, or Z reason. Yeah, I went through this with one of my clients uh, a while back, and my client was not deported in the end. Um, the uh, I got my client an immigration lawyer. It was we did the you know best we could, and ultimately the client wasn't deported. Uh, and in that case, I you know I think that was the right thing to do because it wasn't a crime that was. Um, really posing a threat to the public. But in this case, it's it's somehow even worse because dangerous driving uh, is really a negligence offense, you know, in many cases. And in this mm-hmm. case, in particular, it was. I mean, he yeah. just wasn't paying attention at that moment. I've never been uh, comfortable with the conviction for dangerous driving in this case. I, I think it was a, um, a plea that was, um, was inappropriate. I, I'm not happy that he was convicted for dangerous driving. I think it should have been a careless driving um, circumstance. But um, one can understand the the pain for the families, the people of Saskatchewan, the people of Canada. Uh, when they see this, you get behind the wheel and you've got a pretty high uh, onus and obligation. But in the end, uh, I heard some of the um, family members of the deceased hockey players uh, saying that they didn't want to see this fellow 
deported. Um, you know, anybody who's driven in Saskatchewan, in rural Saskatchewan, knows how quickly um, you can come up on a highway and not know that it's a highway, even if it's well signed, because you're driving for so long and your brain goes into just driving mode. Yep. Uh, and it's a fundamentally dangerous thing. Um, and, and this was really a, an issue of failing to pay close attention to his duties as a driver in the end. And so now he's being deported and it's, uh, it's, it's just a matter of going through the steps. He's going to be deported. I just like, I don't like it. Like the characterization that they, when they put this in the immigration of refugee, refugee protection act, they define it as serious criminality, making a mistake that has the most tragic consequences imaginable, but a mistake that was being distracted and, you know, working too many hours. And we all know about all the level of moral culpability that the people from the trucking industry have um, with respect to this. They're not getting deported. Their businesses aren't getting shut down. But this person is losing everything that he worked for to come to Canada to provide for his family after already taking responsibility, doing everything that, you know, all the pitchfork-carrying tar and feather crowd would want somebody to do in a situation like this, going to jail, voluntarily going to jail instead of fighting it out when he had a defense. Pled guilty and took responsibility yeah. early, early, remorseful, early in the process. Forgiven by many family members and yet still can't stay in Canada because of serious criminality. This is not serious criminality. There is absolutely no suggestion that he would ever reoffend. There's absolutely no no likelihood that something like this is going to happen again involving him. There's no protection of the public or national security issue here. Well, uh, if he wasn't deported, then the uh, and, and ultimately there's still the discretion of the uh, of the minister. Um, if he wasn't deported, of course, the government would be attacked for being soft on crime. Yeah. Um, and he, if if he is deported, they'll be attacked for you know being cruel to him. Um, so one way or another, it's the same people who are saying, you, you, you've got to stop this protest. You've got to clamp down and deal with these people. And then, you know, they get all freaked out when the emergency act is used for two weeks to do it. <laughs> so like you, you can't win either way. You're going to face that criticism. And I suppose the easy default is just to, uh, to go with, look, this is what's in the law. Uh, but that's unfortunate because it's, um, you know, I, I expect I expect more of our elected officials. I expect them to be able to stand up and deal with it and explain it. But of course, you know, this is sort of our polarized system these days. So, yeah. Um. Well, we need to talk about our the ridiculous driver of the week. That might be cheerier. This is cheerier. What is it? This is everyone in Langley, the entire population of Langley. Oh my apparently. gosh, that's not fair. Well, no. But what is it? Uh, on Daily Hive, you can find an article. It was posted on March first, so it's a little we're a little behind the times. But there's a new roundabout that's been put in um, in Langley, and people do not get it. They are it's a struggle bus for them. <laughs> um, there's video if you find the Daily Hive article, video that somebody has been catching it um, from his residence that I guess looks out 
over this roundabout, like people going the wrong way, people getting confused, stopping. Um, They're driving past each other in the roundabout really, really closely, narrowly avoiding accidents. Um, There's like numerous videos. This guy's just documenting it. I kind of like imagine it all with the Curb Your Enthusiasm music in the background. Done, done. Yep. Hope we don't have to pay for that. So uh, that's the <laughs> that's the ridiculous driver of the week is the Langley the, roundabout all, all, all the people users. In, all the people in Langley who are driving through the roundabout and ending up on the video. Thank you, Langley, for the entertainment. And please go find the article and find the video and have yourself several laughs tonight. Awesome. All anyway. Right. Well, that's our podcast. Yeah, good podcast this week once again. Yeah, and if you need to get in touch with us about a driving law-related issue, just give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. <laughs>